I'm going to bring to you a fellow retired cop, a fellow consultant, and uh, a guy that I also uh, sit on the board with uh, on a of an organization called Citizens Behind the Badge. We'll talk about that as well. But uh, David is an author, and uh, he does a lot of training and a lot of just fantastic work with the public safety community around this country. And uh, I just knew you had to meet him. David Bray, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so grateful to be here with you. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about your police and uh, EMS career. You started working in public safety even earlier than I did. Talk about that. Yeah, I was 14 years old when I started as a volunteer with the local rescue squad in the town I grew up in. Uh, it was a great opportunity to get out of the house, out of the chaos of, you know, under my own roof, my own home, and just experience uh, what reality was like and somebody else's reality, quite frankly, and be able to give back and get out of my own head. Uh, so that was 14 years old. I did that for about 10 years until I graduated college. Uh, from that point on, I moved into the law enforcement world. So I want to talk about that just for a second, because uh now we have a 25 year old, uh, you know, on college campuses, if there's a uh, a political candidate who shows up that they don't agree with, they need uh, counseling and a therapy puppy and things like that. At 14, you're volunteering to see people's trauma and tragedy and injury and uh, all of that. Um, just talk about that experience for a minute. So when I was seven years old, I had my tonsils and adenoids removed because uh, I was a very sick kid up until that point. And so I spent like two days in the hospital, which was now it's an outpatient surgery. You're done in an hour. But uh, back then in the stone ages, it was uh, a two day surgery. And uh, I couldn't believe the amount of care that the doctors and nurses provided to me. And I knew from that point forward, uh, I wanted to be a doctor. And not only did I want to be a doctor, I wanted to be a pediatrician. I wanted to help kids. So when I got to the age of 14, I was able to join the rescue squad. I was like, wow, what a great way to be a pre-med, pre-med student, right? Is uh, by joining the rescue squad and becoming an EMT. And I just loved the idea of helping people because I didn't see it at the time, but I probably needed help myself because my house was chaotic. And, uh, but I knew that by helping people, I was going to fulfill a purpose and a need. And uh, I found it there and the adults there kind of, really took me under their wing and, you know, and schooled me and what to do. But yeah, there's a lot of trauma absorbed at that young age that you're not prepared to deal with. And uh, we didn't, we didn't deal with it. You, that's when I started packing things away early on in life. So instead of becoming a doctor, you decide to become a cop and you spend a couple of decades doing that. You had a career where you did, uh, you had so many different assignments and, uh, but then you decided to, uh, kind of, you know, make a change and try and affect the lives of not your community, but other police officers and public safety uh, members. Talk about that switch. So it all started in college, uh, freshman year, first semester, failed botany. And I knew right then and there, doctoring was was out of the question. So I needed to find something else that this, uh, you know, non-biological mind could do. And uh, I found law enforcement and uh, I worked for public safety and I became a police officer. I did 20 years with the East Windsor Police Department. Uh, like you said, I had many different things. My uh, highlight of my career, I would say, was being a drug recognition expert, a DRE. Um, and I really enjoyed that and mastered that skill throughout 
um, course of my career and became a court recognized expert in uh, many different jurisdictions. Uh, I was also a 9-11 rescuer, uh, which was uh, shaped not only my career mindset, but my life mindset. And uh, upon my retirement, I didn't retire with purpose. And that was a mistake. And uh, I retired in a pretty depressed state on January 1st of 2020. And if we do the math on that, I dove right headfirst into COVID and then uh, the civil unrest throughout the country. And I, I reluctantly say this, but COVID was the best thing that ever happened to me because the world stopped and it gave me a chance to catch up. And uh, so I then the end of July, July 29th of uh, 2020 in the heat of all the civil unrest, a very close friend of mine had taken his own life. Uh, I was a detective sergeant a couple of towns over. And uh, I, I realized if it wasn't going to be him, it could have been me. And uh, it gave me uh, a reset mode that I knew I had to enter and find my way out of this dark hole that I was in. I found, uh, well, somebody found me in this place and put me in the resiliency program that New Jersey was forming and uh, to be an instructor for that. And that's how I found my purpose. And I, I'd say my purpose found me because now I get to help other police officers with the tools, uh, these pre-boom tools that they can absorb. Uh, so when they do get into the state that I was in, they can find their way out of it. And now, so you know, we we talk a lot about resiliency when it comes to police officers and first responders. And of course, we talk a lot about mental health and we've been talking about it for decades, but we don't seem to have a very good handle on it. You know, police officer suicide uh, continues to be a huge issue in this profession, you know, again, you know, we can go back to when I started in the, in the early eighties, um, where we didn't talk about police officer mental health at all. And we were told in the Academy, you know, go shut up, go do your job. And then when you go home, don't talk about it. And, uh, and everything will be fine. There was a switch, you know, kind of a, a, a change on into the nineties, but now we're in 2023 and it doesn't seem to be a whole lot better. Talk about that. So even into this new generation, I think that there's still a stigma attached with mental health care. Uh, you know, when we hurt our leg and or if we have a broken leg, we're not going to limp on it until it fixes itself because there's a great chance it won't. We're going to go to the doctor. We're going to have them fix it and we're going to heal through their instructions and we're going to rehab our leg and we're going to get back to as good as we once were and move forward. We don't do that with our heads. If we have a head injury, physical or emotional, we don't deal with it. We need to change that and we need to fix it. And we need to address our mental health and we need to get the support to help heal that. We need to go on the healing journey through the instructions of our peers or our doctors and peer support, by the way, I find to be more effective than uh, clinical support. And once we heal, we can go on our way, but it's a matter of taking the time to do it. And we recognizing that it is not a career ending injury, but we need to see that from an administrative and a legislative perspective as well. And I think that's why people are so afraid to get help because what's the first thing, first of all, as cops, what what's the symbol of being a cop is our badge and our gun, right? And what's the first thing they take away from us as soon as we get into mental health trouble is our badge and our gun. Now you've stripped that identity from somebody and how are they going to recover within the silo that they've lived in 
if you've taken that silo away from them and you put them in this unfamiliar space. So we need so, to address it. So what do we do about that? Because I have talked to, I can't tell you how many cops I've talked to who said, I did what you told me, Sarge. I went, you know, I asked it for the EA, uh, EAP. I asked to see a counselor. I said, and exactly what you just said happened. They're, they're put on the desk or put in a room. Their gun is taken away and uh, they're told, well, there's something wrong with you and we'll try and help you get help, but we don't know if you're ever going to go back to the street. So I think, and from the experience I've had in my uh, education and review of you know science materials, it needs to start early. It need, the, that intervention needs to start in the police academies. It needs to start with this pre-boom training, the pre-boom tool collection in our virtual tool belts uh, that we can use to uh, along the way. So these uh, these things, these experiences we have don't accumulate over time and they don't then explode uh, and then you know have an overfilling of our cup. We need to keep that cup at a level level playing field. So when there is added stress or unexpected added stress, we can evaporate some of that cup before it overflows. I think starting in the academy is where we need these pre-boom tools. And the resiliency program is, uh, is, is pretty good at that. And it gives people the opportunity to learn these positive interventions that they can use along the way, starting with gratitude. If you can just be happy with what you have instead of upset with what you don't, man, that goes a long way. goes a long way. Gratitude intervention is huge. Show it to other people. And the hardest part, especially as cops, be open to accepting other people's gratitude of you. Well, and I think that's why one of the reasons it needs to start in the academy, right? Because we all go into the, most of us go to the academy, a pretty open, optimistic person. And uh, within about a year, uh, the door shuts on all that. Again, and a lot of that self-protection because we're, I mean, I was 21 years old when I was in the police academy. I really wasn't prepared for what I saw in the Chicago suburbs. And I, and I know, you know, at virtually every cop I talk to says the same thing that, you just really have no idea how horrible people are. That is 100% true. So I ended up working in the same town I grew up in. Uh, and between the time I left home for college and the time I got back, I was spent four years in this bastion of academia where it's such a bubble and you see nothing of the real world. I came home from that. I had done an internship with the New York City Medical Examiner's Office, which was a complete eye-opening experience for me and for so many reasons. Uh, but when I started back up as a police officer, I thought I knew the town. I thought I knew the people in it. I thought I knew all the nooks and crannies that you could hide and run through. I'll tell you, even as a 10-year volunteer as an EMT, as a lifelong resident of that town, I didn't know anything. Uh, it was unbelievable. You just don't know what is lurking behind a tree in your town until you've done, worked it as a cop. It's crazy. So at some point you decide, and I'm going to, I don't know if this was in retirement, but uh, you said, I'm going to sit down and write a book. And a lot of people say that, and most people never do it because it is pretty daunting. I know to sit down at that keyboard and say, okay, where do I start? But you you wrote a book. I've got it behind me. You've got it behind you. It's called A Resilient Life. And uh, it is, uh, first of all, and I said this in pre-pro, you're a funny guy. You know, you write about traumatic things, um, but you do it in a funny way. You also get into 
um, you know, you get into some personal stuff, some difficult stuff. I think when I, the thing that really touched me was talking about the death of your mom. Um, you know, my mom died when I was a young cop and, uh, and that really struck me. Uh, but also what came across in your book was just your love for the citizenry of your community. I, I think that uh, people are going to be really touched by that you really give a damn about your people and you've got some people that really gave, gave a damn about you and uh so it's just it's a really engaging read talk about what made you sit down and write that so i i said this to my wife i'm an accidental author it was never meant to be a book um i it started back in this dark spot in my life after danny's uh suicide in 20 and uh july 29th of 2020 and I started just writing stories and on post-it notes in my computer. And the reason I did that is because I didn't know how long I would be around to tell those stories and watching the struggle of my friend's children, knowing that they are going to grow up with not who, knowing who their hero dad really was. And they're only going to grow up knowing how his life ended, not how he lived it. And I knew that if that were to be my fate, that's not what I wanted for my kids. So I started documenting things. I started by documenting family history prior to my birth. Uh, my parents, my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. So we started with that. And then I just kept all these notes and interacting with more and more people that had written books. I'm like, darn, man, I, I should really do something with all these notes. And that's kind of what happened. And I started formulating. I worked with an editor who is also a friend and uh, we just kind of put things together and voila, there was a book. It was crazy. Uh, but what a cathartic experience, getting it all out. And honestly, the, the the goal for me was to have people find their own purpose through the lens of my journey. And that way they don't live in isolation the way I did for that period of time. And finding purpose is so important to finding your why and then serving the world with your why. Gosh, just, to me, there's no, nothing more important than that. Nothing less isolating than that. And that was what, that was how it came about. And I think that I, and that's what I want people to know. This isn't just a book for cops and not no. at all. Um, you, you literally have a resiliency in your gene pool clearly. And, um, and when you, when you talk about purpose and story, I think a lot of people can can really look at this book and look at your story and you tell the story of, of others as well um, that they can they really can find meaning. But as we were talking about in in uh, before the show, that word resiliency is overused and abused. And, you know, and I'm one of those people that that, you know, any any book with the word resilience in it, you know, I'm picking it up and reading it and uh, trying to get something from it. but. I want you to talk about, because now this is what you do, how people can really become truly resilient. So resiliency is a buzzword. Uh, I don't know that I love it. I love the concept of it. And, uh, you know, it's been a buzzword for us in law enforcement. It's a corporate thing now as well, which has its, it, it gives it some validity because unfortunately sometimes in law enforcement, if we have a thing, it just looks like our thing, but it, when it's outside of the bubble of law enforcement, not only does it give us internal validity, but it's external validity as well. So uh, I, I think 
the word itself has become diluted. However, the concept of resiliency is not just bouncing back. To me, bouncing back is never good enough. You have to bounce forward. And if you don't get beyond the, the, the starting point after you had fallen, what good is the recovery at that point? Because you're just back to where you started. And chances are you're going to encounter the same pitfalls that, you, that, that set you back to begin with. So I love the idea of bouncing forward and moving beyond what caused you to have a fallback to begin with. And that's kind of the, the whole theory of positive psychology. Positive psychology is not the, the happyology of, uh, of psychology. It's a positive psychology is the active part of mental health. And I'm so glad you said that because, and this is something my husband and I talk about all the time, you know, as we're training police officers and then just going about our daily lives is the fact that, that we both feel like we have done a pretty good job despite about, despite all the garbage that we saw as cops of, of doing that positive framing and, and uh, being able to, to deal with the traumas and the tragedies. Are, are some people just more predisposed to that? than absolutely. others absolutely and there's been scientific research done with that specifically through the uh the army and university of pennsylvania uh dr seligman from the university of pennsylvania did a study with the army where they kind of categorized uh people's um personality traits upon intake and those people that scored higher were less likely to have ptsd on the opposite side of their deployments and uh, therefore, they thrived more, not only in theater, but post-theater. And they were had a greater sense of well-being. Those that scored lower on that initial test were, were I forget the percentage at this point, but were per- percentagely high, more likely to, um, to have trouble, PTSD, trauma-related issues, and depression, quite frankly. And um, that's where you need that therapeutic intervention that is before you can take yourself into that next stage. Why are we testing for that when we're testing new recruits? I couldn't, I, I can't answer that question. I wish I had one. Otherwise, you know, I'd be the next, you know, Bill Gates here. But the, uh, I think that that is so important. I think it's so important that we do pre-testing for not just the psychological test, the hundred questions, that, you know, the hundred question test that only has five questions written 20 different ways. Uh, and gosh, some of those questions I recall were just so bizarre. However, I know that test has been tried and true. I I get that, but we should be testing for these personality traits to understand what an adverse event effect looks like on the individual post-event when are they going to need therapeutic responses or can they do interventions on their own that will take them back into that thriving mode. But I think before, you know, none of us are true scientists here, uh, but, but so before we enter that realm, I think just the training piece, the resiliency training, that pre-boom training, if we can give police officers those tools at a young age in the academy, just out of the academy during probation, I think they'll be so much more successful in their career. They'll have such a higher level of empathy going through their careers. And I think that level of empathy is what will keep police officers off the five o'clock news. That is so well said. We we just have a, a couple of minutes. Uh, one of the things that helps law enforcement officers so much is the support of citizens. That's why the National Police Association exists. And you and I both sit on the advisory board of an organization called Citizens Behind the Badge. Talk about that for just a minute. 
So Citizens Behind the Badge is uh, run by Craig Floyd, who's the CEO emeritus of the, or founding CEO and CEO emeritus of the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Fund, which, as we know, built the uh, memorial itself in Washington, D.C., as well as the um, the museum. And at post Craig's retirement, he started this organization to counteract, the initial um, interest in the organization was to counteract the defund and defame movement of policing because that defund and defame movement was negatively affecting, negatively impacting the mental health of law enforcement officers. It's why we have a recruitment problem today. It's why we have a retention problem today. And Craig formed this organization. He reached out to folks in his network that he thought were influential. And uh, we are doing the best we can to support that initiative and advise him through the organization. He has done such a great job of getting the attention through legislation, through PR, through mailers. It's incredible. And it's such an honor to be part of it. Yeah, he is just one dynamic guy who has such a love for the American law enforcement officer. David, uh, tell people where they can buy the book and where they can find you. So the book can be found on Amazon and at barnesandnoble.com. Uh, those links are available on my website, which is www.64consultants.com, uh, spelled S-I-X, the number four, consultants.com. And uh, you can also go directly to the Barnes & Noble Amazon links. The book is also starting to pop up in some local bookstores uh, right now in Western Massachusetts, but we're trying to expand that. And uh, I'm just grateful for the opportunity to get my story and message out and hopefully influence other people's journeys as well. I'll tell you, we appreciate what you're doing uh, for the profession. And uh, we thank you so much for spending time with us today. And if you would like more information about the National Police Association, visit us at nationalpolice.org. Put the gun down! Put the gun down! Last year, law enforcement officers were involved in hundreds of thousands of use of force incidents. A use of force incident is when an officer must use nonverbal tactics to gain control of a dangerous situation. Put the knife on the ground. In many cases, officers have no choice but to use force when a suspect doesn't comply with a lawful order. Use of force is always ugly. No one likes it, especially police officers. Together, we can help de-escalate these dangerous encounters. Help police officers by complying with their lawful orders. Don't attack, attempt to disarm, or flee from an officer. Use of force is an officer's last option. Most incidents can be avoided by not resisting arrest. If you feel you've been wrongfully detained by a police officer, then seek a legal solution after the encounter has been resolved. Let's keep everyone safe. Comply now and complain